All right, welcome to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, have you managed to keep the uh, chocolates intact, or has have they been cracked open before the weekend? I just got some today, actually. Ah, right, so they've been sitting around. Yeah, you know, I've been late to... Halloween stuff. I mean, fortunately, they always overbuy. The, the oh, yeah. funny these supply chain issues haven't affected, you know, Halloween <laughs> chocolate. But. That shipping container didn't fall off the boat, <laughs> or or burn on the boat, or oh <laughs> boy, the myriad of the Smarties are burning. Oh. <laughs> It's not ready. <laughs> uh, well, may may not be laughing when the Christmas Smarties are delayed, but um, oh, that that would be a travesty. Or the Cadbury Easter eggs. Oh, even worse. Indeed. Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada. And around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be the Ward 1 City Councilor, Dan Gibson. You may remember that last year, Dan came on the show to wrap up uh, that year's budget. But this year, he is going to kick off this year's budget by uh, doing a bit of a preview with us, uh, which will be Guelph's first multi-year budget, by the way. So there's a lot to dig into. Uh, that will be at the bottom half of the show, though. For the first half, we're going to talk about the latest COVID pandemic moves here in Ontario. Doug Ford, a visionary, has boldly set a deadline for the end of the pandemic. Can we meet it? Uh, But first, it has been more than a month since we had that very urgent election uh, that Prime Minister Trudeau insisted that we must have immediately back in August. And uh, he finally got around to naming a new cabinet. Actually, I'm laying on the sarcasm pretty thick because I, I do. There are some interesting moves in this cabinet. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes next. Yeah, and it's, it's extensive. I, I had to print mm-hmm. the cabinet list just to even to be able to discuss it because there's so many shifts and shuffles this time around. And uh, I was I was struck by something that uh, Andrew Coyne had said, too, about the size of the thing. Mm-hmm. There's 39 cabinet members. Mm-hmm. There's been several portfolios that have been divided and subdivided over the years. But and then I thought, well, yeah, let's check the UK because that's you know the system that ours is based on, and they have they have half that. They have like 21 cabinet members. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't wrong. It it is it is very heavy <laughs> in terms of people, uh, but of course significant. That's why we we give it the we give it the space that we do, but. I think they um, also have a less political civil servant class than we do. I think like we're somewhere between the UK and America in terms of just how politicized our civil service is. Mm-hmm. So the goal was gender parity and regional balance. And that has been the goal for a long time of, of cabinets and the various shuffles that go on. They have uh, <clears throat> hit it for the most part. Uh, some things weren't surprises because there's, there's always the big leak, which of course was um, say John, getting kicked out of national defense portfolio mm-hmm. and replaced by Anita Anan, which most agree is a good move and sounds like she is going to do a solid job. Um, that was one of the more significant ones, but, you know, going on down uh, the chain, there was quite a bunch, uh, quite a few new people, including um, <clears throat> Marcy Yin specifically stood out for me. 
mm-hmm. a long way from Circle Square Ranch to uh, the cabinet of the Liberals. Well, it's a it's Canada a AM. It's a Canada AM reunion because on Canada AM too. That's right. <laughs> Seamus and Marcy were both on Canada Seamus AM. Seamus and Marcy, Canada. yeah. I don't think Seamus is on Circle Square. Now, there's an obscure reference, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, yikes! Uh, so, so yeah, a full a foolish shuffle. I don't know what we would call it. Um, maybe I mean, you should take it from there, Adam. I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm reviewing the list again, and I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, there were, that. yeah, there were eight positions um, where that were unchanged. That the the same minister is in charge pre and post election, and their position hadn't changed. I mean, there are others like. Like Bill Blair, who's still the Minister of Emergency Preparedness, but he's also now the president of the Queen's Privy Council. So that's like a change in position. That's a little bit more work for Bill Blair. But there are eight in all, including Christopher Freeland and uh, Trudeau himself, who's, uh, whose positions have stayed the same. Um, yeah, the Anod is interesting, although I have seen people taking swipes at her qualifications. Um Although I think the problem, I mean, let's be honest, she's not going to be like <laughs> in any war planning uh, meetings in the immediate future. Uh, the problems with Canadian forces right now are kind of all organizational. They're like, you know, um, they're HR issues. And she has a lot of experience in, you know, managing big organizations. Also, um, I mean, her job as procurement minister, she's like probably the the most name brand procurement minister in history because of the vaccines. People's, I think we have such short memories, but people may not remember like back in February and March when we were getting like a box of Pfizer (laughs) vaccine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And people were hammering her and hammering her and hammering her. And she would always be on these briefings speaking very clearly, very calmly, uh, very reassuringly. Uh, I mean, she's a star for good reason. And I, I, I think you can't diminish her, her contributions. Also, considering the issues and the forces are, you know, involving sexual misconduct against women in the forces, I think it probably helps having a woman there. Uh, I think it helps having a non-military person there in that mm-hmm. position because i mean it's it's not a this isn't an accusation against sajon but he was a canadian forces uh officer i think it might be possible he was a little too again not not making any accusations but i mean no he he, he was probably a little in too tight with some of the officers or at least seeing things from their point of view and i think very clearly that approach did not work. So maybe having an outsider, having someone with organizational experience will help flush out some of these issues more. I know, I mean, it's going to be a lot of pressure on her, but as we've seen, she can handle pressure. Mm-hmm. Also, she's not the first female minister of national defense in Canadian history. It was Kim Campbell, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. So are you, you're implying that it's a, it might be a bit of a stepping stone because that is part of this is reflected in this as well. The sure. question being, who's next? I mean, being Freeland, a of course, is a stepping stone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Freeland, of course, getting touted. Well, I mean, her position was solidified almost right away. That was the only one that we knew going into this. Um, mm-hmm. And and some other, just to touch on some of the more, the heavier hammer stuff, like like that one for sure, is uh, Stephen Gilbo in, in, 
environment and climate change. He was, mm-hmm. I didn't know this. I knew he was an activist of some sort, but I didn't know he was with Greenpeace. Climb the CN Tower, baby. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- that's significant because that kind of activism is normally like, I wouldn't describe it as liberal. And I think that is what the uh, conservatives are focusing on. It was, <laughs> oh, yeah. Because what was, o- I'm trying to remember O'Toole's line, ideologically driven. <clears throat> and of course, he said incompetent as well, but that's just that's just typical tool riffing. But yeah, the the yeah. Um, raising the hackles, let's say, is uh, is that appointment, and one that's kind of a uh, I would uh, hate to use back from the dead in the spirit <laughs> of Halloween. Back from the dead, Melanie Jolie mm-hmm. uh, gone to foreign affairs, and and Mark Garneau, who is I didn't read the article, but I just saw the headline. Garneau supposedly not happy about this demotion. So that was a surprising one. I was surprised at that. You would have thought that Garneau would have been maybe a lateral thing, but he 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 was smoked quite, you know, unceremoniously well, let go. So I was like, oh, I, I mean, guess it, the time has come to mix that up as well, right? I mean, it, it foreign affairs seems to be. I mean. Melanie Jolie is the fifth foreign affairs minister under Trudeau's government, which is only six years old. Yeah. So this is a, a really uh, tumultuous position. And I don't know if that's because of management out of the PMO or it's like a lot of hours on, a, on planes and uh, high profile. I don't know. Um, but I mean, it is interesting that Garno gets the hook. Um no clear indication why it's not like he lost or, you know, and he was, he spoke on Canada's behalf at the UN general assembly. And I was like three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I mean, it's, it's ultra mysterious. Um, well, the, there's rumors of diplomacy too. I think they said, uh, you know, sent to Paris, like uh, uh, Dion was as well. Right. Didn't he become ambassador to France. Yeah. So well, there's, <laughs> It's conjecture at this point. Well, we don't know. Right? One person I know was uh, definitely not happy with the Jolie appointment was Warren Kinsella. This was the headline oh, from, his, from his op-ed <laughs> in the Toronto Sun. Trudeau unleashes disastrous Melanie Jolie on world. Um, I looked at like what how he defined disaster, and it's like uh, Canada 150 wasn't as awesome as it could have been. And uh, she sold Canada out to Netflix and, uh, you know... It's a lot of like really, <laughs> you have to really dig deep to characterize her as a disaster. But on the other hand, too, she was been reelected twice with over 50% in her yeah. riding. So, I mean, obviously, people in in her riding are okay with her. Like, the like it, it wasn't even a contest against the Bloc Québécois candidate. So, I'm, you know, th- there's something to be said for steady, <laughs> steady popularity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a quieter disaster was probably Carolyn Bennett getting moved mm. from Crown Indigenous Relations to. I got a bigger disaster than that. Oh, okay. Bardish Tiger uh, is out. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, what do you what do you think happened there? We. Oh, okay, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. She's she's kind of like the last. I mean, aside from Trudeau himself, but she's kind of like the last appendage. From the Wee scandal. So. Here's your sword, Bardish. Time to go. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the disappointing thing, too, is that, like, there's no cabinet representation for Southwestern Ontario, even though you've got uh, liberal members from Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Guelph, Milton, uh, London, Niagara, Hamilton, Windsor. And uh, yeah, so it's, 
you know, screw us, I guess. I well, <laughs> no, yeah, I guess there always could be a, a minor shuffle at some point. This this needs to get a little bit more entrenched, but we'll see I mean, how it goes. I, I, can we throw Tim Louie a bone? I mean, he he, he wins. Wait, this is the thing is um, Pascal Sedong got a cabinet seat. She's minister of sport. She won by less than 200. It feels like we're giving out prizes for like, you made it. You made it, Pascal. <laughs> and if, if that's the case, Tim Louie definitely deserves something because <laughs> he's done it yeah. twice. A little more than a participation medal, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just in the favorite name file, Dan Vandal. I had no idea that I didn't know who Dan Vandal was. I was like, yeah, Dan Vandal. Yeah. New Minister of Northern Affairs and what? Canadian Northern Economic Development. There's a lot of economic development portfolios as well, aren't there? I was every reading region, through it. It's like, yeah. yeah. Every region has one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of economic development. Let's mm. see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if it works out for them yeah it's um i think it's politically speaking like the right mix of like new faces old faces reliable faces uh i mean mostly the um, other than garno and chagger the only people who are kind of like out of cabinet are the ones who didn't win again so it's you know promoting marcy ian is smart um promoting sean fraser is smart uh you know, he was Atlantic Canada rep, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And what's his face from Edmonton? The one, the one liberal guy from Edmonton. What's <laughs> that's his- that's the problem with this extensive list. You know that guy? <laughs> I can't remember his name, but he's from Edmonton. Yeah, the yeah. guy, the guy from the plate, Randy uh, Bosano. Yeah, so he's he's huh. back in in cabinet. Um, also, LGBTQ plus representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw him. What's God, this marathon, like half a day coverage of the swearing in, which uh, it, 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 I, I'm trying to pay uh, a compliment. Randy Bolsonaro uh, you know, was walking up to Rideau Hall with his partner, which was uh, a nice uh, sight. Um, but yeah, like uh, that. This is this isn't the Oscars, people. This is like, yeah, I. I don't recall this in the past, like <laughs> the kind of coverage that this is getting. I, maybe now that there's, I mean, there's been dedicated news channels for a while, but it's, it was, I can understand why we would talk about it because it's our wheelhouse, but uh, like, I don't know. I was watching CTV news and it was like watching Evan Solomon. Oh, here comes, uh, here comes <laughs> Seamus O'Regan. And, and he's uh, wearing his father's shoes. They're his lucky shoes. Yeah, he's something what, like that. Right? You're gonna, what do you What do you know about Seamus O'Regan, uh, Michelle Boyer? Oh, oh, he's from uh, Wikipedia. Uh, it just <laughs> no. It's no. We can we can take the morning off. Like just put a set up the camera oh. and walk away. Put it on live stream. We can watch the I, live stream. Yeah, like this isn't like inauguration day in the states where the whole point is like pomp and circumstance. We're not that precious here. Just I, I would be like he was on the famous Aga Khan trip with Trudeau, and yeah, <laughs> that that would that'd be my line. That's why I don't have that gig. So yeah, that's why this is that's why we're on community radio and not um, mainstream media. <laughs> are we gonna talk about Grand Père Chrétien? Do we have any time or not really? Yeah, let's talk about uh, Chrétien for a minute. Uh, saying, and I quote. Uh, the problem was never made 
but the problem was never mentioned when I was minister. He was, of course, referring to residential schools when he was then. And I'm sorry, I have to say it. Indian affairs minister. Uh, apparently, residential schools and abuse of residential schools never came up, except it did because they were able to dig out a letter uh, sent to Chrétien uh, in 1970 from what was the school? Uh, I can't read my writing. No, that, that, yeah, that, and Latouk. that came out. Latouk. It was from Latouk that a kid yeah. was being abused at Latouk. And apparently, uh, Jean Chrétien never heard about it. And that came out within like an hour of yeah. the story breaking. Somebody's like, I have here in my hands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Somebody was sitting on it for 40 years. I guess, I guess so. I don't know. But yeah, I did. They did um, show a picture of it. And of course, to the right honorable, I was like, oh boy. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, he d- he doesn't know when to 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 stop talking. We were talking a bit before the show about people from the old school. He's about as old school as it gets. Lots yeah. of experience and all that, but to say something like that is just plain ridiculous. And to compare his boarding school experience, which yeah. might not have been the best, uh, so what? There is no, there's no comparison, right? There literally is, other than that, they're both called a boarding school. Uh, one is called residential school, though. And what's the other thing? Telling the queen, this was in his book. I don't know if it's a forthcoming book, like not to apologize to the indigenous people in New Zealand. Because mm-hmm. when you get to Canada, it's going to take you like a couple of days to apologize to everybody. Like, you just, just no, just no. Yeah, pops. there was a, there was an interview no. he did with I think Rosie where he's like. I don't know why they don't call me for advice anymore. It's like, I think the question answers itself. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of apologies, apparently the Pope is going to be coming to Canada at some point. That was kind of breaking news on Wednesday that mm-hmm. uh, the Pope has said he will come and um, make some. Is it like the queen? Do we have to pay for him to come or does, do they? Well, I mean, look, the Catholic church has been around for 2000 years. So I gotta be showing a profit by now. I'm just saying. He'd hope so. And he probably gets <laughs> uh, special rates. On Alitalia, I don't know. But I mean, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, it's like good news. It's like one of the big, one of the biggest pieces of the yeah. the ninety four recommendations, and uh, probably wait till the weather's better and maybe God. tie it to a significant Catholic day. I would imagine, or maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, that's that is something for sure. Well, not to make light of it at all. But well, more important than date, I think, is going to be location. Is it going to be like he's is he going to go to Ottawa or is he like actually going to step foot on the grounds of like the Kamloops or Miraval schools and. Yeah, he probably shouldn't go to Ottawa because then it'll become about something else. Indeed. Right. Speaking of something else, uh, the COVID pandemic is apparently going to be over by the end of March because that's when Doug Ford says all restrictions could come off. <clears throat> so he must have like information that like Isaac Fogosh doesn't have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or Dr. Uni. Yeah. <laughs> or, or all our favorites. <laughs> um but yeah, the immediate reaction was uh, great. Now you're just giving like anti-vax people uh, indication. They just have to keep their 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 heads down until March 28th, and all this will be over. And somebody literally asked that to Christine Elliott in question period. It was either Tuesday or Wednesday, and she's like, "Yeah, I guess." <laughs> I mean, that was essentially her response. Like, I maybe. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty much done. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the, of course, as we know, the problem with this is if it becomes an, an uh, let's just call it an Alberta situation where you do this whole ripping off mm. of the mask, everything is fine, and then it's mm. like, no, everything is not fine. I think some of the concerns voiced by the the doctors, let's call them the usual suspects, the uni in particular, had said, 
um, the usual, we need to proceed with caution. Taking off masks is a bad idea. But then the, the wrinkle in this is that if there is a, and no one wants to think about this, but it is a possibility that we get some kind of COVID that doesn't respond to vaccines, mm-hmm. then we really have a problem. Mm-hmm. So that that's, that's worst case scenario. The best case scenario is that they are somehow by some kind of miracle correct and that we are going to see our way out of this. Things are going really well at this point mm-hmm. but to maintain the really well we have to maintain the things that we've been doing and it's not just vaccines right it's all of this other stuff uni it's, was talking about being inside he's like oh you know you couldn't get me to hate in a restaurant in i think he was, he was in the uk and he was terrified mm. and this is professional right because it's just i don't know if you've seen anything out of the uk and other places too but there in particular i've just seen uh, pictures from festivals and things going on and nobody, you know, there is an occasional mask, but to look at the photos, you would never know that there was a problem. And that could be the problem here that if we slip right back into it without keeping the precautions on, at least for a time, uh, then we're going to have problems. It's not that we might have problems. There will be problems. And I guess they put a little bit of a rider in this thing saying, yeah, you know, this is going to come down, but only if, uh, certain conditions are in place. And we're going to keep the passports for a while, but there, I, that to me, and I'm that cynical that I think all of this is to get it, get it over with before the election. Right? Oh no, I'm definitely, I was thinking hundred percent, like yeah. just let's, you know, it does. We, we won. Yay. We beat the thing. Uh, June 2nd. Is it June 2nd? <laughs> it's June 2nd. We should yeah, know this by yeah. now. Um, vote for us. Because we killed the COVIDs, the COVID. I right. I keep having this image of a campaign launch where uh, where Doug Ford's standing in front of a mission accomplished banner, um, earning a I, mask. Yeah. That, <laughs> I mean that that's kind of the the issue with all of this is um, he he came out the other day and said, "Oh, I think we can get to ninety percent without." getting kids vaccinated because i understand like you have young kids that you know you may be concerned about getting the vaccine it's like okay dude way to throw some vaccine hesitancy napalm on the fire because oh, yeah. you've already set an end date for when nobody's going to check for vaccine status anymore now you're saying no nah, i you know if you don't want to get your kids back that's okay i understand instead of saying like we're going to do this based on scientific evidence and the scientific evidence and it was approved by uh, the fda uh or the cdc one of the two yesterday uh, or Tuesday in the United States, um, they're saying, yeah, this lower dose for kids, it works. It, it's, it, it, you know, uh, it's good to go. And now I looked this up, uh, the vaccine schedule for young people, uh, for kids. And like before you're one years old, you have been vaccinated for tetanus, polio, pertussis. I have no idea what that is. The, oh, the cough, the grinding cough. Yeah. Oh yeah, pertussis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't got it, so I mean, vaccines <laughs> work. What it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, all of these vaccines, and it's like parents have no problem going in to get their kids those shots. What they need to hear do is like hear some comments from the premier. It's like you know what we're gonna go based on scientific scientific evidence. You have Christine Elliott saying schools are gonna play a big part in the vaccine rollout for kids. And then you have the premier who's. Uh, his own adult children are some of the most prominent anti-vaxxers in Ontario saying, oh, I understand if you don't want it. I mean, and on top of it all, there's still 1.5 million eligible people in Ontario who have not been vaccinated yet. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's the wishwash flim flam of messages that it's going to get us. And that's, as you were saying, on top of it all, I mean, this has been, this has long been the trend of this. We do good on the numbers, restrictions come off, numbers shoot way up. And, you know, we saw that last fall before Christmas and the restrictions come on right after Christmas. Things get better. Restrictions start coming off. Wham, we're back in restrictions at Easter. And I mean, it may be different this time because of the vaccines. Vaccines may make that difference. But I mean, you can't say for 100 percent certain. So like putting dates on calendars, that's that's just you're just you're just essentially asking for trouble when I mean, as it is, people are anxiously looking for reasons to toss the masks off and you're just you're just kind of not even being premier dad now you're just being premier whatever <laughs> <laughs> doug ford premier whatever yeah yeah well, that's and that's true like it's proven everywhere that the mask mandate in itself was was um eliminated mm. uh case numbers went up among among all the other factors too, but it's one of the big ones. The masks go. We don't like the visuals of the masks. We don't like the optics of the masks. So when they're gone, we tear them off and celebrate. Then uh, problems happen. Mm-hmm. Like uh, best summer ever, right out west. <laughs> um, I hate to keep harping on that, but there's it's a prime example of where it can all go wrong. Now they're they're saying, oh no, we're we're getting it, we're bashing it into shape now, but um, sort of, right? I mean, there's and cause yeah. to be optimistic because, I mean, uh, on Wednesday, there were no new cases in Wellington, Dufferin, Guelph. There are nine cases in Guelph, uh, Guelph being one of the most fully vaccinated places in probably Canada. Uh, nine cases, active cases right now. Uh, the lowest of the three municipalities that are part of Wellington, Dufferin, Guelph. So, I mean, that's anecdotal evidence. But, I mean, it's a strong indication yeah. of just how how well this is handled. But, I mean one slip up here or there. And I mean, it could be back to restriction town. And I mean, that's the worst case scenario. Absolutely. No one wants to go back to restrictions. No, this is, that's a Guelph factor. We can get our heads around that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> a whole ton of people, a ton of people have gotten the jabs and it's, it, it's going fairly well. It's but. almost like we plan that to be the last word mm-hmm. uh, as we go into break and then bring in our guest from Guelph city council. Um, we're almost ready for prime time. We were joking that we weren't ready for prime time, but I think we're almost there. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and uh, queue up our interview with Councillor Dan Gibson. You are listening to Open Source Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. George Pal to his bride, I'm going to give you some terrible thrills like a. One of my favorite Halloween carols. That's our Royal Cat Records <laughs> pick of the week. Royal Cat Records 21 MacDonnell in the downtown. And I almost guarantee that that is available on vinyl in that shop. From the Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack, 
which is probably the Halloween movie next to Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 3. Uh, science fiction double feature, mm-hmm. which uh, is a song that probably belongs on your other show a little bit, Adam. Uh, Name checking th- all those old films, you know. There's not many songs do that. So, Well, we did have the first part of a science fiction double feature on this week's show when we reviewed Dune. Uh, so, oh, yeah. looking yeah. forward to hearing that. You mean you haven't heard it already? No, sorry, man. I'm a little behind on my. <laughs> I'm a lot behind in everything. That's okay. I know what you, I know what you. I feel you. <laughs> it's busy. Oh. Life's busy. Uh, Life uh. is busy, which is why we're so grateful to have had a chance to have Dan Gibson on our show again. Uh, as as I said at the top of the show, we had Dan on after the budget last fall, and uh, I thought it'd be fun to have Dan before the budget. It's becoming uh, tradition now, right? Yeah, it's uh, the budget. The actual budget documents come out next week, next Thursday. Uh, so this time next week, you should be able to go to the city of website, the city of Guelph website, and download them. In the meantime, you'll have to just enjoy this conversation between Dan Gibson and myself as we talk about the issues facing city council around this year's budget. So let's press play, starting now. Dan Gibson, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Oh, great to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, to begin with, I kind of want to do a little bit of a, a disclaimer of my own. Um, there was a kind of big headline last week. Uh, start for the budget this year is 5 to 6% increase. Sure. I seem to recall this, be the, this being the starting point every year we, we kind of start off with five to six percent and after some like wheeling and dealing and horse trading and new, new <laughs> information it comes down to two or three am i am i crazy or is that what happens every year uh as a political observer i i think that you're onto something <laughs> uh it, i i will say this though it's not intentional when when the outside boards first give us the preliminary budgets when staff are giving uh, their preliminary budgets this is the number that uh, we start out at. That being said, hopefully through staff, through council direction, and also staff looking within to where they can trim their budgets, we can bring it into a, bring it back in at a more reasonable number. Um, in I guess it's in about four weeks from now. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be it's going to be a pretty quick paced uh, budget this year. I think we're receiving it first week of November, and we approve it first week of December. So um, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, a week from today. Uh, so how would you characterize, um, I guess, the challenges of this year's budget? Um, mm-hmm. You know, look, appreciating neither of us have seen the, the spreadsheets yet, uh, but just, you know, sort of what you're hearing uh, from staff, from your constituents, I guess, uh, where's your head at right now in terms of like the challenges? Sure. So I guess the, the big major challenge, um, I think it goes without saying, is inflation. Inflation is is a real issue facing all Canadians this year. Guelph is not immune to that. We need to be cognizant of the inflationary increases that are happening to the households in our city. But that being said, I, I hope that they will be appreciative of our costs are inflating as well. So uh, not just on salaries and collective agreements, but on straight materials on the capital side. Um, everything seems to be more expensive at this time of year, or this, this stage of uh, our recovery. So Inflation is the big word that um, we're having to navigate through. The other piece too is, um, 
you know, we're looking forward to seeing what our dividend is from Electra this year. I think that'll come out, that'll bear out in the first week of the, the budget, as well as what our new assessed growth um, is. So as new homes come online, new taxation for the city comes on. So what, what amount of our budget will growth account for? Um, that is always something that um, MPAC has a role in later on in the budget as well. The, the other piece is um, there are two levies that we were able to navigate through last year, the Guelph hospital levy, which I know a lot of people understand we need to start collecting for when we do expand our hospital uh, that comes on the books this year, as well as uh, the Guelph library uh, levy, the 20 year levy that's associated with that capital build. We were able to find the funds to uh, fund most of that levy last year, but that will come in full, full with the full impact this year. So mm-hmm. those are two things that are um, understandably uh, driving up the, the budget. But, um, you know, there's lots of ways to try and account for those things. And as you say, the last week of the budget, um, we're always asking those tough questions of where can we where can we find resources and where can we move move things around? Do you have a red line, whether that's like sort of a a number for the increase or something like spending you won't support or, you know, is there any. I guess, like sort of hard walls for you going into this that you're, you're, you're already kind of have an eye on. Sure. So not to paint myself as an ideologue, but um, you know, there are the reality of municipal budgets, as you know, is that we, we do not run deficits. So the pace at which we grow our organization has to be met, has to be met with the expectations of our residents. We cannot simply grow um, our, our organization so fast that residents can't keep up. It has to be a partnership. So every year I'll state my, my, my intention is to bring a budget in and around 2% um, because that should be our goal, our collective goal. That being said, um, I have approved budgets uh, up to 2.69, up to 2.7, I believe. But once we, once we jump over that 3% threshold, that's when I really start to uh, look at the budget with discerning eyes saying, are there things here that we can pause on, that we can slow things down on? simply because once we get to 3%, um, I believe that is a threshold that the municipality should, shouldn't cross. I think 3% is, um, is acceptable to the public, although not everyone. Uh, I think the goal <laughs> should be two, but um, a 3% budget in a year like this, where you know we are a growing city and we do have pretty ambitious goals um, uh, on the library and on the South End Rec Center and on the, uh, on the, on the hospital, we, we understand those, those costs. So um, yeah, somewhere between two and three percent is is where I'd like to land again. Um, that's just my my stated goal from the beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess how tricky is it when and and this goes. I mean, this goes for most organizations. The biggest cost is people, mm-hmm. um, the employees. Um, so when we're talking about cutting, we're talking about. Uh, whether it's new FTEs, we're talking about work that might not get done because there isn't the staff support. If we're talking about maybe cutting FTEs, we're talking about, you know, laying people off. And again, that work has to go somewhere. So I I guess looking at potential places where there could be cost savings, uh, there's not a lot to work with. Um, And and I guess, you know, how do you, how are you going to be making some, some of those tough decisions that you've talking about? Right. Good question. So um, I try not to make this answer too long because there's lots there. Uh, for starters, um, a lot of inter, inter-annual decisions impact the budget. 
and so uh, not to get into the details of the collective bargaining that's happened, but I think council staff and the, our unions, our partners at the unions have done a very good job at coming in with reasonable increases this year. Um, and so I think that alone is a, is a mitigation on our, on our uh, budget increase. So, I mean, I'll, I'll say publicly, thank you to our public unions for um, coming with reasonable expectations on what a, a cost of living increase should be. So I think that that's really set us up um, in, a, in a beneficial way to have uh, a reasonable budget increase. Um, there are other things that I've already mentioned that drive up the budget, however. Um, so on, I know you mentioned the word cuts and I wanna make sure I'm clear. There, there's primarily three trains of thinking mm -hmm. uh, on municipal budgets. Uh, one is it costs what it costs which I don't accept. Um, I, I think that that is, I think that's, uh, um, I don't believe that's an appropriate way to look at the municipal budgets. As you know, we can't run deficits. So that's one train of thinking. The other train of thinking is cuts. We need to cut, cut. And I don't really buy into that either because mm. I, I, I've been a part of this organization for seven years now. Um, I know the efficiencies that are being sought after every day. We just did the uh, service rationalization, which gave us really good insights on where we could make investments to save money. But rarely are there outliers now where we're looking into the organization saying we should be cutting this, this part of the organization because it's too, it's too big or inefficient. Um, we've had time to do that dissection over the last seven years. So my sort of my um, philosophy on municipal government is, you know, how can we manage the rate of our growth? And mm. so you can, you can, as the city grows, if you manage your growth appropriately, so minimizing the number of new FTEs, doing more with, doing more with the same, um, you can really right-size your budgets over time, which I think we've shown that we can do that over the last seven years where we're, again, we minimize our rate of growth and we allow our, our current tax base to grow and account more for that budget. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the third train of thinking, which um, arguably isn't, I, I wouldn't say is the majority thinking, mm. but it, it is a, a reasonable approach to finding that, that, you know, honest to goodness, um, reasonable tax increase um, and, uh, and allowing your city still to grow. I'm glad you phrased it that, that way, though, because the third path is the most difficult because it is. Yeah. And, and you've seen this, too. And you can think of like some of the people who might come to delegate on council from both side one and side two. Sure. And um, that I mean, that, th that that third path is kind of always the way. But the but, you know, people don't necessarily get side one and side two either that mm -hmm. you can't just let her rip with the growth. Um and then you, you know, you can't just like, I, I, I always remember a couple of years ago, there was a certain delegate who suggested cutting the communications department, like in its entirety. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, I respect those, I respect those opinions and I accept their, and I accept their opinions. Um, quite oftentimes I'll have a conversation with them and, you know, within half an hour, an hour, we, we understand that the communications department is a pretty important role, yeah. um, in terms of, uh, messaging and helping people understand, um, helping the community understand hot topics. So um, we can always do things more efficiently. Um, my big push in this, in this budget, I think I've already mentioned this a few times is where can we have stackable benefits? So on, on whether it be on advancing our, our climate change goals or advancing our efficiency, you know, investments in communication, investments in technology, where can those be harmonized to find the greatest impact? I don't want to treat our strategic plan as siloed. Um, mm. I want to see where we can have stackable benefits when we 
when we try to achieve multiple aspects of our strategic plan um, with, with investments. Mm-hmm. That um, sort of managing the rate of growth you're talking about, I imagine that becomes a bit easier when we're talking about multi-year budgeting. Uh, it can. Um, the reason why, so I, I am a supporter of multi-year budgeting uh, on a few fronts. And my biggest concern was that uh, councils would be essentially handcuffed within a year of being elected for the next three years. And I didn't like that. We, we, are, we are here to govern. We're here to make, we're a decision-making body. Um, we're not just here to, um, we're not just here to guide the ship. We're here to steer the ship. So uh, I wanted to make sure that council had an opportunity to put his fingerprints on the budget each year. I was given that assurance that the budget would be opened every year. So in a year like this, where the budget's coming in at 6%, could council get their hands dirty and try and drive that budget down? Um, and those are all assurances I've been given. So yeah, you can do a, a forecasted budget with multi-year budgeting, which is great. Um, gives you gives staff more flexibility in terms of what projects they put on the books and when. Uh, and to that point, we've been doing that with the capital budget for a few years now. Mm-hmm. The capital budgets had a, a 10-year forecast. So residents and counselors can see when those projects are planned to come on board and they can be offering that to residents. So when's that new park? When's that new splash pad coming? We can always look to the capital forecast and say, this highway project is happening in this year. Um, so the multi-year budgeting is is in line with that sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. Is there a concern though, given what we've talked about so far about kind of the, what, what the, the kind of things that happened in the last week, uh, the impact uh, growth assessments, uh, the sort of discovery of, uh, I guess the loose change in the couch cushions is one way to look at it. <laughs> you know, uh, that stuff is kind of hard to forecast. If that's the kind Agreed. of stuff that happens, you know, uh, when Tara Baker's in her office at 11 p.m. at night with a calculator and an abacus. <laughs> right, that's right. So th- again, the strategic plan sets the goals of council. Um, and I won't, I won't mix words. I think our strategic plan is uh, beyond ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> at times, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit um, wishful thinking, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to temper that. Now, when you're doing a strategic plan, you, you, you aim big, right? But when it comes to actual budgeting, you have to temper all those expectations and, and bring it back to what is realistic, what is affordable, and what can we realistically achieve uh, through each year's budget? So um, it's good to goal set, but it's also an important exercise to uh, ground it in reality. And that happens at budget. So you, you've heard our, our strategic plan is going to cost us 6% tax increases every year for the next five years. And I, I, not that that's, the re, that that's actually been the message delivered, but you know, staff delivered a message similar to that on, on the first budget workshop. Council has to make decisions about whether or not that's reasonable or whether or not we should be tailoring back um, our ambitions. And uh, I'm in the second camp. I think we should be pulling back on our ambitions a little bit and, uh, and growing at the speed at which Guelph households are, are growing. That makes me wonder, though. Um, there, I think there are some of your council colleagues, and I think you know this too, who see the strategic plan as a roadmap, not necessarily as sort of like a visioning exercise about where they want to take the city if like cost and logistics were no object. Uh, I mean, is there, is there a showdown coming between these two camps? I, I, uh, 
It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question, Adam. Um, I'm accountable to the, to the residents who elect me. So, um, you know, I, I try to navigate through these big picture questions and these big picture issues with my counselors, but ultimately I'm accountable to the residents who trust me to make decisions on their behalf. So I think any showdown that council has ultimately is there. We are all accountable to the, to those who elect us. So if those, if there's members of council that believe 6% every year is reasonable, um, their electors will, will tell them if they agree. Um, Mm -hmm. if, and, you know, I've always held that, that people will ultimately decide who they want to be making decisions on their behalf. So um, I, uh, I try my very best to represent those who um, support me and, and those members of our, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I try my very best to support the voices of my ward. Mm-hmm. I ask about the friction because after this past week's meeting, uh, I could feel the friction <laughs> and I mean, it, it makes me wonder on a couple of levels, whether it's a, it's just kind of like the end of term, like it's the last year of term. Everyone's been together. I mean, this, the majority of this council has been together for eight years, almost eight years. And the other part of this too, is uh, that I was wondering, is it like, is this a, like an example, sort of like pandemic isolations, everyone's in their separate zoom boxes, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're not in the same room. So perhaps there's a little bit loss of collegiality just because of the circumstances. Right. Um, you know, how, how are you feeling about all that? So, um, I've always prided myself on being as authentic as I possibly can be. And so these are my opinions, but they are my authentic opinions. I think the heritage file up on Victoria road is, has a, a long hangover. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a number of, there's a number of issues that have stemmed from that interpersonal issues that are still playing out on council. And, uh, it's going to take some time for those, um, for those uh, wounds to be resolved long hangover i think that's probably the best description (laughs) i've heard of this situation uh going back to the budget though um you you talked about being a voice for your constituents uh are do they do you think your constituents understand um sort of the changes going on the the realignment with the strategic plan we've already done one budget um through this method but also like the, the multi-year budgeting. Um, do you think they are sort of prepared to engage with you on, on, on the level of sort of how the, the, this new way that the city is doing budgeting? Yeah, I, I think that they're not, they're, not, um, they're not turning a blind eye to it, but let's be fair. Uh, I didn't vote to support multi-year budgeting to increase taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I supported multi-year budgeting as an efficiency measure to forecast what our budgets could be and, and where we need to reset expectations. We should be resetting expectations. It didn't change my, my perspective on what tax increases should be. Um, but you know, when I, when I talk to neighbors and when I talk to residents in the, in the city, uh, their first and foremost concern right now is that they have an extra hundred dollars a month going out the door uh, to fuel up their cars. They have mm. an extra 200, $250 a month going out the door for groceries um, inflation is a real thing. So if, if taxes want to jump by three, $400, $500 next year, uh, in one year, uh, that's an incredible amount. You know, there's residents who don't know where the first $5,000 are coming from. They don't know where the next $500 is going to come from for taxation. So, um, I've said this many times, um, around the horseshoe people live in cities, um, because it's a good deal. 
People mm-hmm. live in cities because it's an organized township and there's efficiency and there's value to live in cities. You get your water and sewer delivered to your home. You get your garbage and recycling picked up. You get your snows, road plows. There's good time response times for ambulance and fire. But once that stops being a good deal, residents will, residents will make that decision. And I, um, I'm not concerned, but I have seen uh, more in the last five years, people of my vintage, you know, bought their first home 15 years ago, choosing to live outside of Guelph or outside in Post Lynch or the township or something like that, getting their family home um, outside of the city uh, that, you know, it's caused me to realize that we need to temper the rate of growth of our taxation in the city. It's just, it, it continually is shown to me that uh, when, when an opportunity presents itself, a lot of residents, um, are asking themselves, where is the best value for my ho- for my family household? A lot of that is the real estate pressures too. You can buy a, a bigger home in those smaller communities uh, for less money than, uh, than you can in Guelph. You know, I, I guess one of the things that strikes me or struck me is uh, at the workshop a couple of weeks ago, Councillor McKinnon said something to the effect of, you know, we can't worry too much about, you know, what's going on in, in other sectors because you know we council essentially can't control those council can only (laughs) control its own budget right you know you don't see grocery stores not increasing prices because they're sitting there going well the gas stations are already increasing their prices right it it, there is kind of a uniqueness in this situation that you're talking about like well we we can take into account the economic pressures that people are feeling in other places and you also Mm -hmm. have this other sort of more Zen, shall we say, interpretation by Councillor McKinnon. It's like, no, we need to focus on our own house. <laughs> I agree. And, and he's, he's right to a point. So what, how do I answer that? That's a good question. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to discount his opinions because they are true. However, with council, with ambi- as ambitious a budget and outlook as we have in our council agenda, um, when there are externalities like COVID or a recession or a very long recovery process, which is being even the Bank of Canada said today, inflation may, may reach 5% for the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to look at how ambitious we want to be and the costs associated with still being as ambitious as we want to be and perhaps tailor that ambition back a little bit and say, we should just be pausing on some of these more um, nice to do's or wants to do's and get back to how do we how do we just keep the lights on for the next few years while we navigate through this inflation crisis? Mm-hmm. It's a, I guess it's a question of back to basics, or maybe uh, a question of uh, how much can we rebuild comfortably um, mm-hmm. to to meet the city's ambitions in the short term until things get more normal and i'm using the air quotes we're on radio so yeah i agree (laughs) well you know you look you look back at budgets from 2011 to 2019 in our city they averaged three three and a half percent they they just did they were very high in in my mind they were high um but those were also during good economic times Mm -hmm. um when when the economy was going strong you could argue that perhaps we could budget a little bit higher because um you know the unemployment was low and, and wages were going up um that's a different story today. So, you know, during a recession, that doesn't mean municipalities, un- unlike upper levels of government, province and feds, where they can run deficits, 
the Keynesian in me says, you know, you run big deficits during a recession to keep, to keep people's standard of living uh, comparable. Uh, for a municipality, it's almost the opposite, where we, mm. you know, we have good reserves and we support people during a recession through those reserve funds, but we don't add on. We, right. don't, we don't add on to the budget. Fair enough. Uh, maybe for this last question, I'll ask you, uh, the goatee, uh, does that go <laughs> at the end of the pandemic? Is that a pandemic goatee? Oh, you've is noticed. This, is yeah, this the new noticed. Dan Gibson for forever? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a conversation with my wife, Adam. No, I'm kidding. Um, last summer, uh, we were very blessed to uh, have, I think, during one of the lockdowns, 11 weeks, 11 weeks off. Uh, not off, but 11 weeks out of the office and um, 11 weeks of dedicated time with the kids. Um, we spent a little bit of time uh, at the cottage and uh, something that happened at the cottage. And um, I've asked a number of times. I have one vote to take it off in the house and I have two votes to leave it on. So uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I think I can extrapolate from that which are the one and which are the two but i will leave it there uh yeah. dan gibson thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for hopping on with me today thanks adam big fan of the show i keep doing what you're doing very much appreciated and so that was once again counselor dan gibson and uh look for those budget documents on the fourth and then the all day budget presentation is on the 16th which Sticks out on my mind because it's my sister Stephanie's birthday on the 16th. So um, <laughs> that's a good, that's a nice present for her down in Leamington. Uh, I guess. Happy budget day and Stephanie's birthday. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and I guess we should add the, the public feedback night is the 21st. So um, ah. if you, if you have something to say about the budget, that will be the ninth. Prepare the dossier. Prepare the dossier indeed. Unfortunately, that is all we have to say for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on the Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to this show again, download it from our website every Monday on the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. I myself personally am on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can see my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for all information, CFRU, check out CFRU.ca, and uh, there's a plethora of uh, stuff there. Oh. You to dig into shows when they're on, what's going on, plethora. Who are we? How do I work this? That's no, a six fifty SAT word, I believe. Um, <laughs> Is it really? I don't, know. I don't. I have no clue. A cornucopia <laughs> of uh, factoids. There you go. How's that? All right. The word. The word of day calendar is working. Stay mm -hmm. tuned for DJ. Sounds good to be here at the top of the hour on CFRU ninety three point three FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will return per usual next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then.